Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this evening's lecture of the historical group of the Society. There are a number of events in aviation that everyone has heard of and that are thought of as seminal. And the accident to the airship R101 must be one of those. Tonight we're really lucky to have two experts to tell us about the airship and the accident that occurred to it. Peter Davison, over that side, is a member of the Historical Group Committee who was, for 26 years, on the staff of the Science Museum, ending as Assistant Curator for Aeronautics. He's co-authored eight books, written numerous articles. He's worked for the Airship Heritage Trust for over 15 years and was instrumental in the long-term preservation of the Trust's collections. Um, he's been working with the um, Peter Macefield Archive at Brooklands, which has a lot of material relevant to tonight's lecture. Dr. Giles Camplin first flew in a hydrogen balloon in 1966 and has since become an expert in lighter-than-air flight. He has extensive practical experience in balloons and airships, including building and operating them as ground crew and as a commercial hot air balloon pilot. He has met surviving crew members from the R101 while constructing a replica for the film Chitty Chitty Bang Bang at Cardington. His PhD is in ground handling of large airships. He's currently editor of the Airship Heritage Trust's <coughs> journal, Dirigible. Um, there are probably no two other people better qualified to tell us about the R101 airship and the accident that occurred to it. And I now leave it to them. Will you join me? In <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, 80 years ago tonight, the British rigid airship R101, built at the Royal Airship Works Cardington, set off on her 12th trial flight, heading to India with 54 persons aboard. At 0209 hours the next morning, in bad weather, she came to ground on a French hillside south of Beauvais and burned out with the loss of 48 lives. The disaster was on a scale not seen since the Titanic. Tonight we plan to describe the circumstances surrounding the incident. We are fortunate to be delivering this lecture coincident with the departure time from Cardington. We plan to finish coincident with the R101 crossing London. There is much to say. I hope we will not overrun to the time of the disaster. First, we need to understand a little about the rigid airship program that culminated and ended with the R100 and R101 in 1930. During World War I, the Royal Naval Air Service operated over 100 non-rigid airships, or blimps. 
on coastal and convoy patrol with great success. Blockaded by the U-boat menace, Britain would have starved without the Royal Navy and its supporting RNAS spotter airships. Indeed, some regard these patrol airship operations as the first proper Battle of Britain. A non-rigid airship is akin to a barrage balloon with a powered gondola beneath, often merely a reworked aircraft fuselage. This is in contrast to those known as rigid airships. These were developed in 1900 in Germany by Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin and in structural terms consisted of a row of hydrogen gas bags constrained by a lightweight framework of girders clad with a fabric cover to provide protection, streamlining and dynamic lift. At this time, heavier-than-air aeroplanes were severely limited in payload and range, between 300 and 500 miles, that flew only by day with very unreliable aero engines. The political will was inclined towards imperial communications, particularly with regard to the mail and financial transactions. Oceanic journeys were all by ship and therefore slow and often uncomfortable. Remember that Limburg in 1927 was only the third person to cross the Atlantic non-stop by aeroplane, and then only eastbound, assisted by the prevailing winds. By that date, over a 100 persons had crossed by rigid airship in both directions. The potential lifting power of the rigid airship, which needed no runways and whose inherent buoyancy made it safe in the air, independent of engine power, made it attractive to the British government, particularly if it bettered the Zeppelin. Confidence was such that there was even a plan to haul tons of building material for Indian railways using towed airships as barges. The aeroplane progressed more rapidly than expected, but non-stop commercial transatlantic aircraft were still 20 years away. Britain had been threatened and bombed by the rigid Zeppelins in the First World War until fast-evolving fighter aircraft countered the threat, but the air ministry still envied the Zeppelin technology. After some success in copying German designs, a British rigid airship program was initiated, and in 1919, the R-34 made a successful, a successful first aerial two-way crossing of the Atlantic in 183 hours, comparing favourably with shipping of the day. Even Kipling wrote of it, I have always fancied the dirigible against the aeroplane of the overhead haulage of the years to come. Even as late as 1935, the editor of The Airship wrote, Only four commercial airships have been constructed in 17 years, yet they have progressed from carrying 30 people, R-34, to 132, Graf Zeppelin, and from a few pounds of freight to 10 tons. The elapsed time has been reduced from over four days to two, and at a cost of as many thousands of pounds as the heavier-than-air machine has had millions. The structure of a rigid airship provides an external, tapered, cigar-shaped frame of rings and longitudinal girders enclosing a series of cylindrical gas bags, at this time filled with hydrogen under low pressure. These are constrained by wires that transfer lift to the structure. It is then clad with a doped fabric outer cover to contain and protect the gas bags. Early rigids were mainly tubular in shape with parallel sides and a tapered nose and tail. As aerodynamic knowledge improved, designs became more bulbous, using frames of varying diameters. This shaping generated additional dynamic lift, created as the airship is powered through the air. The engines were mounted in cars slung outside the structure, maintaining separation from the inflammable gas. The control car protrudes beneath, 
and in the case of R101 and her sister ship, R100, the crew and passenger accommodation were within the ship itself, thereby reducing drag, but also reducing the hydrogen capacity. You'll note that a cruciform tail section supports the elevators and rudder for control. British rigid airships operated from a fixed mooring mast, attached at the nose to allow the ship to pivot with the wind. Boarding was from the mast through a nose gangway. Ships were crewed continuously when anchored at the mast. For the imperial scheme, masts were constructed at Cardington, Karachi, Ismailia in Egypt, and Montreal, severely limiting the mooring operations and options elsewhere. May I remind you of the enormity of the R101, longer than three Boeing 747s, with a girth that would just allow passage beneath Tower Bridge. Although the two Cardington sheds remain, their true scale is only realised from close up. Shed size was a serious limiting factor for future growth. Not only would the airship swamp Trafalgar Square, but Nelson's column could stand inside either shed. The Canary Wharf Tower is six feet shorter than the final R101. The rigid airship's cruising altitude is determined by its pressure height, the accepted norm set in 1918 being at least twice the ship's length, for R101 about 1,500 feet. If a ship strays too high, then the increased pressure within the gas bags has to be released via balance control valves. Any subsequent loss of hydrogen cannot be replenished in the air, so height control is essential. The height coxswain, helmsman and navigator are skilled to interpret the effects of landscape, weather and buoyancy in maintaining safe passage. The height coxswain stands sideways, specifically to aid his detection of movements in pitch. He generally required a settling-in period after a change of watch to get the feel of the ship under the prevailing conditions. The crew complement was composed of three watches in naval tradition, control cabin staff, engine crews, riggers, and those dedicated to the care of the crew and passengers. Only two watches comprising four officers and 37 crew were to travel to India, saving weight, but adding to potentials for crew fatigue. In 1921, Commander Deniston Burney proposed an Imperial airship scheme calling for six giant airships, all to be built by Vickers, expanding a monopoly that they had enjoyed building submarines. By 1924, the Ministry, eager to encourage private enterprise, but mindful of the need to control development, commissioned two competing prototypes to evaluate long-haul routes, the primary target being an imperial link to India and eventually Australia. The Imperial Airship Scheme called for a gas volume of 5 million cubic feet, a payload of up to 100 passengers cruising at not less than 60 knots for 48 hours, a still air range of 2,880 miles, allowing one stop via India, via Egypt, en route to India. The use of heavy oil or diesel engines was recommended. Highly inflammable petrol vapour had caused previous casualties and was seen as a significant hazard, particularly in the tropics. The Ministry decided to build two prototype airships, one from Vickers on a fixed-price contract and one at the Government Royal Airship Works at Cardington, with maximum innovation. Combined flight trails would tease out the best of both for future fleet development. Vickers resorted to petrol when a proposed hydrogen-kerosene mix proved too slow in development, thereby rendering R-100 unable to fly in the tropics. This suited Burney, who saw more business potential in the Atlantic market. So given the imperial emphasis and the city of Montreal funding the mooring mast, 
R100 was designated for Canada. Cardington stayed with diesels on R101, heavy but very economic over distance and safer for tropical climbs due to its higher flash point. In one Cardington press demonstration, a petrol fire was put out by pouring diesel on the flames. The use of hydrogen was unavoidable. Non-inflammable helium was not available in quantity nor outside the United States of America. It was extremely expensive and provided less lifting power than that of hydrogen. If the weight of fuel and engines together were compared for the India flight, R101's diesels had the upper hand over R100. Both airships followed the pattern of R33 and R34. The R33 was famous for a safe recovery after being torn from her mast in a storm, blown across to Europe, partially repaired in the air, and returned to base. It was also used as a carrier for aeroplanes, hooking on and off the trapeze below the hull. The repairs limited its availability for training flights. R34 was acclaimed for its triumphant Atlantic crossing in 1919, just after Alcock and Brown, but carrying 33 passengers and crew in comfort. Significantly, in 1921, the lightweight R38 airship broke in two over the River Humber on handling trials with the US Navy. Although designed to operate at altitude, it was manoeuvred violently at low level, excessive rudder inputs breaking the structure. Most of the crew perished. One section caught fire, probably due to close-wired electrical circuits. The victims included many of the technical experts of the time. Flight wrote of the accident to R38 on the 1st of September 1921. This having occurred, it is obvious that the ship would buckle up, and the matter of fire is then almost a certainty. As the girders were parting, they would probably strike a series of sparks, which would ignite the mixture of hydrogen and air existing around the broken part of the hull and thus start a conflagration. Added to this, the petrol in the tanks in the keel of the hull would either burst or come adrift, and the petrol fumes would be added to the mixture of hydrogen and air. This fact may and probably does account for the explosion. The R-38 inquiry proposed increased strength requirements for future airships, renewing public confidence. However, meeting these specifications added to the weight of future designs, potentially far more than was really required. It also reinforced the fears associated with using petrol. R-100, built by Bernie's Airship Guarantee Company, designed primarily by Barnes Wallace, was based along conventional Zeppelin lines, but constructed from helically wound duralumin girders joined by an innovative spider joint. The gas bags came from Germany. Assembly was by Vickers at Howden in Yorkshire. Contract payments depended upon pre-agreed milestones. Once completed, soon after the R101, it was transferred to Cardington in 1929 for testing and trials, hence the mooring mast and the second shed. The maiden flight of R100 not only carried most of the AGC team, but also Colmore and Rope, important folks from Cardington. No risk assessments here, or lessons learned from the R38. Wallace had already moved on to aeroplanes in 1928. He hoped that future ships would copy his design and use similar methods of construction to R100. The earlier maiden flight of R101 on 14th of October 1929 also carried important passengers over central London, an unthinkable risk today. As can be seen, intended airship routes generally followed coastal or oceanic routes. Flying over water was considerably easier than over land, 
the air being generally less turbulent. Most rigid experience to date had been gained offshore or over familiar territory. Hugo Eckner, the Zeppelin pilot, wrote in The Airship in 1935, This is the only effect of a storm, at least over the ocean, where the disturbance of the atmosphere is small. In a storm over land, air movements, following the contours of the ground, of course carry with them great turbulences of the atmosphere, which cause the airship to pitch more or less heavily. The effect is comparable to the action of a surface vessel in a high swell. With this in mind, policymakers envisaged an air system based on coast-to-coast airship services, combined with trains and aeroplanes for overland operations, an opinion reinforced by R-100's journey between Newfoundland and Montreal in August 1930, when severe turbulence in the St. Lawrence Valley caused damage to the tail fins and elevators. R-101, seen as the government ship, was designed by Colonel Vincent Richmond and squadron leader Michael Rope, the components being detailed and manufactured by J.D. North's Bolton and Paul of Norwich and delivered to the Royal Airship Works at Cardington for assembly. Innovation was the order of the day. Richmond assembled a group of eminent advisers. Professor Southwell from Oxford University, formerly at the National Physical Laboratory, evaluated the various aerodynamic forms. Tom Cave Brown Cave led on power plants. Harold Roxby Cox and Alfred Pugsley were among the Cardington-based designers. All the fight trials of both ships were managed from Cardington, so, naturally, ministry attention was focused there. Both teams were committed to the mission, though cooperation was rare. Wallace, in particular, was often contemptuous of close competitors, although some concepts were discussed amicably. We have a letter from Wallace that he wrote to Richmond on the 6th of August, 1927. I am very much obliged by your kindness in sending particulars of the new R101 gas valve for my information and much appreciate your action in placing this material at my disposal. Naturally, I suppose every designer prefers his own ideas, and I should not be sincere if I pretended that on the whole I did not still, i.e., until it has been shown unsatisfactory, prefer the arrangement which we have worked out for R100. This remark, however, does not in any way detract from the genuine admiration which I have expressed our own arrangement possessing very little originality and still less ingenuity. And in that respect, and perhaps many others, is undoubtedly inferior to yours. The Cardington workforce was a close-knit community. Many lived in Shortstown, a purpose-built housing estate opposite the factory gates. Family and social life revolved around the works. With the civilians were ex-Royal Naval Air Service personnel mixed in with those from the Royal Flying Corps and serving members of the Royal Air Force. This mix of ranks did cause confusion in the chain of command. George Herbert Scott, a former Army Major and the heroic captain of R34, is seen here with the Air Minister, Lord Thompson. He was appointed director of, uh, Scott was appointed Director of Flight Training as a civilian. He had a supervisory role on both airships, but was not the designated captain. Issues in his personal life were known locally to be affecting his judgment and the crew's respect for his decisions. He was always known for pressing on in adversity. He was well known to Wallace, Richmond, and Wing Commander Colmore, Director of Airship Development. Vincent Colmore was crucial, especially to the flow of information to the Ministry, initially to John Higgins, and then Hugh Dowding, who took over at the Ministry only a few weeks before the India flight. Sir John Higgins, the Air Member for Supply and Research, 
wrote to the Air Minister in January 1929. We should arrange that if the further flying of R100 and R101 shows that there is no reasonable prospect of airships offering a successful solution of the problem of imperial communication, then we must close down the experiment and cut our losses at the earliest possible stage. Colmore was in daily contact with Major Scott and Vincent Richmond. His judgment in deciding what was passed up the chain of command to the Air Minister Thompson via Higgins and later Dowding was crucial as the departure day approached. There was nobody in the Air Ministry with any direct experience of airships to judge his advice. Dowding wrote after the accident, Sir John Higgins, my predecessor, told me about Colmore and said that I need not be afraid that Colmore would ever err on the side of rashness. I cannot recollect any occasion on which I did not accept his advice. I had no practical experience on airships, and I considered that my duties were best performed by accepting Coldmore's advice. Lord Christopher Thompson of Cardington, a loyal friend and colleague of Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald, was in his second term as Air Minister. Having supported the launch of the programme in 1924, he found it running late and over budget on his return to office in 1929. A supporter of the airship scheme, and favoured as the next Viceroy of India, he was almost obsessive over the R101. Lord Thompson and the Director of Civil Aviation, Sir Sefton Branker, were both air enthusiasts, driving Air Force expansion, the creation of flying clubs, and the 1929 Schneider Trophy bid. As Air Minister, Thompson enjoyed rare cross-party support. Sir Sefton Branker, champion of Britain's need for air-mindedness, cautioned against the India flight without further testing and the building of additional intermediate mooring masts, but without success. He was, however, keen to participate in the prestigious journey to India. Maurice Dean recalled to Peter Macefield in the March 1977. I still come back to the point that, strange as it may look now, the one thing that no one worried about in connection with the airship was safety. When I was given the chance of a trip on R100, which, as you know, turned out to be a 50-hour endurance flight, I was so excited that I could barely sleep. And I promise you that my feelings were not concerned with being burnt up in an airship crash. On the contrary, the feeling was one of total exhilaration. Of course, the R101 should never have taken passengers at all on such a flight for all sorts of reasons. That I need not elaborate. Therefore, from the start, the passenger list was bound to be minimal, thus extinguishing the hopes of youthful aspirants like Maurice Dean. In the end, as you know, there were six passengers, namely Thompson, and incredibly his valet, two Dominion liaison officers, plus Branker and Bishop, who was chief inspector of the airworthiness department. My clear recollection is that the original passenger, passenger list excluded Branker, and that his name was only added after very substantial pressure had been applied by him. All of us are fallible, but to me, the idea that Branker was a reluctant passenger is 100% nonsense. However, there was a marked lack of senior officers with the necessary skills and experience. Under Scott, there were just six officers between the two airships. Booth was designated captain of R-100 and Irwin of R-101. Captains by name and experience, but always subject to the influence of worthy passengers. Booth was the stronger character of the two friends. Under Irwin on R101, 
The first officer was the experienced Grabby Atherston. Key also was Ernest Johnston, arguably the nation's most able air navigator, and also second officer Maurice Steff, of limited experience, but who had served on both R101 and R100. Many of the supporting crew had given long service on the RNAS blimps and on earlier rigids. Once they commenced flight trials in late 1929, it was clear that both ships fell short of disposable lift, particularly R101. Michael Rope's ingenious gas bag wiring, so thoroughly tested in a full-size test bay, restrained the bags and transferred lift effectively, whilst maintaining the physical separation from the structure. This allowed the hull to rotate lightly around the bags and reduce rolling and surging in turbulent air. To increase the hydrogen capacity, these restraining wires were let out against Rope's advice. As a result, the bags tended to roll with the ship and chafed on exposed bolts on the outer girders. Comfort was taken that hydrogen was at such a low pressure that minor leaks were not regarded as a serious risk, merely a managed occurrence. Extensive padding was introduced, and gas losses were reduced to a similar level as on R100, with its more conventional structure. It was widely accepted that gas bags and cover material was a weak point, but no alternative had been developed. R100's cover leaked very, very badly between Canada and Cardington, causing discomfort and corrosion. Stress testing in general was carried out in what today would be seen as a most rudimentary but practical way. Workers jumped on floor girders and weights were added to assess loads and braking strains. To maintain its aerodynamic form, R101 maintained positive pressure within the outer cover by means of a series of ventilation holes at the nose that also purged any escaped gas, expelling it through gill-like openings amidships and further vents at the tail. Non-structural reefing girders lay between the longitudinals, some of these were later removed to save weight, but others, particularly in the nose, remained. These could be adjusted on the ground to tension the cover fabric from within. Estimates for cover longevity were in years rather than weeks, so the short span from November 1929 to October 1930 seemed safe. Michael Rope commented that the winding out of the non-structural reefing girders to avoid cover flapping might be hiding a reduction in cover strength. Not only was Rope technically expert, but he was politically astute enough to recognise the growing pressures on Thompson to deliver the dream of imperial communications. He wrote a long cautionary note headed The Outer Covers of R101 and R100 in relation to the operational programme. He wrote it to Richmond and Colmore, Director of Airship Development, in June 1930, and it included five pages of measurements and statistics. He concluded... Whether the risk involved in sending either ship on a long overseas flight is or is not greater than is justified by the need to fulfil public expectation. This prophetic statement was not passed up to the Ministry. In July, Airworthiness Inspector McWade of the Aeronautical Inspection Department similarly expressed concerns about the padding of structural protuberances and the risk to gas, bag, gas bags, but he was overruled by Colmore and Higgins. Colmore responded, I feel sure you will agree that we cannot accept, as a matter of principle, that the gas bags in an airship should be clear of all girders. We can accept padding as being a satisfactory method of preventing holes. Once the wiring had been let out to increase the gas volume, the modified ship became what is now referred to as R101B rather than R101A, the original configuration. In addition, an aggressive program of weight reduction was employed on both ships, Cabins and washrooms were removed as the passenger capacity reduced. The accommodation was significantly reconfigured.
Two major issues remained to complete the essential trip to India. An extra 45-foot midship section was proposed, adding extra lift at the widest point, and the long-standing issue of providing reverse power for the ground handling required resolution. The dedicated reverse tornado engine had to earn its keep. A brief list of measures was sent up via Colmore as a simple solution and was approved without reservation. Once it was clear that R100 might be ready to make the Montreal trip, the modified R101B was laid up for this enlargement, after which it became known as R101C. Richmond's diary reads on the 18th of July 1930, Definite ruling from the Air Ministry that R101 must be regarded as a standby for the Atlantic flight. As the time has come when R101 should be divided if the new bay is to be inserted in time for the Indian flight, this ruling definitely means that the date of the Indian flight will probably have to be put back. The use of definitely and then probably is characteristic of the uncertainty within the programme. The Imperial Conference deadline, planned for October, eventually forced the issue. Thompson wanted to impress the attendees by travelling to and from India so he could return in triumph to encourage backing and future funding for the next stage. R101 was parted for enlargement. Cave Brown Cave recalls that without the trip, no development money would be available nor requested from the cash-strapped treasury. During these modifications, R100 made its return trip to Montreal. It suffered damage to the cover over Canada, but these problems and others were underplayed by the Ministry and most of the media. England and the airship scheme needed positive stories. Booth said to Johnston in 11, 1954, November 54, Regarding his captaincy of R100 to Canada, I was thankful as the right place for airships is over the sea, and I never fancied the Trans-Europe or Cairo to India trips. Neville Shute Norway, the calculator on Barnes-Wallace's team on the R100, later wrote, Considered purely from the technical aspect, it was not prudent for either airship to attempt a long flight at that stage of development. We did it, and got away with it. Here we come to the specific factors relating to the final flight. R101 was on its 12th flight, with over 100 hours flight time, plus another 100 hours at the mooring mast. The flight trials were conducted in fair weather, though she did endure an 83 mile per hour wind at the mast, during which a 23 ton pull on the mooring was handled well. The occasional tears in the outer cover were repaired in situ. Although sometimes described as such, the India flight was not its maiden flight. The extra bay was installed in the summer of 1930. The pre-doped outer cover was widely described as renewed, though the front and rear portions, having been doped in situ, where it was slightly more complicated, were left in place. Weakened areas, strengthened by taped bands, were reinforced again. This was significant, as the nose was the very area of the ship essential for dynamic lift and most vulnerable to air pressure, particularly in adverse weather. The ministerial need for a banquet at the mast in Ishmaelia further added to the weight problems, with an insistence that carpet be laid throughout the lounge and nose access corridor. The two reversible engines finally arrived and were installed on the 26th of September. R101 was ready for the prescribed 24-hour flight trial with a full-speed test. Unfortunately, strong winds kept her in the shed. R101 finally came out on October the 1st, but only managed a 16-hour trial flight in perfect weather. 
allegedly curtailed to allow Dowdy, a keen passenger, to attend an appointment. He was eager to fly on his new charge. The essential full-speed trial was cancelled due to oil cooler problems. It was foolishly recommended that this should be done en route to India. The dates of the Imperial Conference were fixed. Thompson, having opened the event, must be back in time for the aviation debate. He had made his plans accordingly. Had the test been run, even in calm weather, the fragile outer cover might have failed on that flight. Thompson also asked for a maximum fuel load to reduce refueling time in Egypt, thereby allowing more time for his formal dinner. It seems clear that Thompson was so protected from specific issues that he never really grasped how critical the weight problem was. The experienced Firth officer Atherston wrote in his diary, The ship appeared to be much better in the air than before, and the cover was really good. Departure was put back till the Saturday night to allow for loading, final preparations and crew recovery, though there is little evidence that sufficient rest was taken. Various officials, Branker and Colmore included, made representations to Lord Thompson to delay until further en route masts were built and that he allow the foregathered Dominion representatives to review the ship in the UK. But Thompson was adamant. We have already made the first flight to Canada. Now we must do the first airship flight to India, so that when we approach the Dominions for further cooperation in the program, I can say that we have done Canada and we have done India. And now you see what airships can do. There are differing reports of the mood on departure around sunset. Optimism and relief from some that at last they could prove their worth, whilst others dreaded the outcome. It is said that Captain Irwin had at one time confessed that he might refuse to go, but he knew that Booth, having a permanent commission, could not disobey an order and would replace him. Long-term administrator at Cardington, Sidney Nixon, described Colmore before departure. On the night of leaving for Canada in R100, he was in a very disturbed state of mind. He told me that he was in a very disturbed in his mind about the trouble which was being experienced with the outer cover. He was in an entirely different mood from the Canadian mood on the departure day for India, happy and contented, with not the slightest trace of anxiety. He had made inquiries about the engine position and the ship in general and was assured by everyone that everything was satisfactory and the weather on the route was reasonably favourable. Captain Rogers, a senior officer on the hydrogen plant, wrote, I saw Scott about 3pm on the afternoon of the day she sailed. As I had heard nothing on how the trial went, I asked him, and he seemed very confident about it being OK. I also saw Rope and asked him about how the lift came out compared with the estimated gain. He said they'd lost a tonne somewhere, probably in the estimate of the proportion of dope evaporated, but that the fuel consumption was so good that it made up for this, he also seemed to be quite happy. The crew were subject to severe baggage limitations. However, Lord Thompson, an eligible bachelor, not only bought a bought food and drink for her banquet on arrival at Shmalia, but a talisman, a Persian carpet weighing 149 pounds to impress his guests. He was, after all, paving the way for a promised promotion to Viceroy of India. The carpet was too long for proper stowage and was reportedly laid in the, in the companionway adding to the existing nose heaviness. The carpet bore sentimental memories of his love for the married Romanian princess, Martha Bibesco. Another personal item, one of her shoes, was found in his baggage. 
giving rise to press conjecture that a woman was on board when it was found in the wreck. The weather was showing a large depression over Iceland and a trough over the Mediterranean. The severity of the rain over northern France was underestimated. Scott's only recorded reaction was to get away promptly before the rain hit Bedford. He had no concerns once airborne. The last item to go on board, without which an international flight could not proceed, was the Certificate of Airworthiness. It came hot foot from the Ministry. The thorough inspection report that required calculations was still being prepared, but subsequently that showed no serious issues. At least four tonnes of precious forward water ballast was dropped on leaving the mast to compensate for the forward trim imbalance, but our 101 still departed with more water ballast than our 100 had for the Canadian flight. Water ballast was reported as being recovered from the rain over France, so should have been available later on. After a traditional circuit of Bedford, by staying close to Cardington, Scott or Irwin had an option to return and delay for better weather. 24 hours would have sufficed, but as ever, Scott pressed on. R101 set off across London for the Channel and first stopped Egypt, second stop India. The journey was progressing well. After crossing London, minor problems with one of the engines were resolved. Dinner was served and passengers retired to bed around 2300 hours. Wireless messages reported all being well. We can be sure that had anything been amiss before then, Major Scott and Captain Irwin would have stayed on duty or kept the previous watch on call. The weather that night was the worst ever encountered over land in free flight by a UK rigid. Remember that with an airship nearly 800 feet long, gusts can differ from bow to stern. Flying at between 1,000 and 1,500 feet just below the cloud base was normal practice, but hazardous at night. A Croydon to Paris aircraft had later reported very rough weather in that area. Foreman engineer Leach, who survived, told the inquiry that Chief Engineer Ghent and Captain Irwin met up with him in the smoking room around 1am. They discussed an earlier engine issue and general conditions. And Leach recalled, Irwin was entirely confident about reaching Ismailia. He said that the only thing he wanted was to get into steadier air conditions. But this he could not do at that time without discharging fuel, which they were very anxious to conserve. All the water ballast forward had gone when leaving the tower. We talked about the flight, and then Irwin went off, clearly well pleased. When the watch changed, it is thought that First Officer Steph, of slightly less experience, took over, and with all going well, the previous watch retired for a well-earned rest. According to the survivors, only the 2am watch and Michael Rope were up and about. All the witnesses reported that shortly after the routine change at 0200, there were two severe dives. R101 was now running into the gale in darkness just below cloud. The wet cover would be heavier and subject to extreme stress. Water ingressing through the cover and via the ventilation holes around the nose would affect the forward gas bags. A large tear in the nose area would not only affect stability in pitch, but also expose these wetted gas bags to the elements. The collapse of gas bags in this section was seen by the inquiry as the most likely primary cause of the catastrophe. In 1962, Cave Brown Cave addressed this Royal Aeronautical Society historical group, saying, The airship was in continuous heavy rain during the flight. Much of the water would strike horizontally on the bow. Much of it would pass through the pressure-regulating holes and onto the two forward gas bags. 
its weight would have two effects. It would add constantly increasing load some 250 feet ahead of the centre of gravity, thereby explaining the gradual increase in bow heaviness. It would also increase the fabric weight of the two foremost gas bags, increasing their tendency to tear under acceleration and finally to rip completely. The gas in these two bags, which were interconnected, gave a lift of four tonnes. If all this were released by a big rent, and with the ship pitched ten degrees down, this gas would run right aft into the tail, a distance of 500 feet, giving a change of downward pitching moment of 2,000 foot-tons. This would be far greater than that assumed in the investigation appended to the report, and in conjunction with the bow heaviness, far greater than could possibly be overcome by the use of the elevator. The initial dive, around 204, masked by the general buffeting, was probably caused by such a tear, followed by collapsing gas bags. It should be noted that slits in a bag are unlikely to cause rapid deflation, though there would be severe drag. The gas in a rigid airship is under low pressure, and the rate of escape subsides. Only large holes in the upper area, like a balloon rip panel, or multiple incisions can cause a total collapse. In 1925, the British rigid R-33 had survived a bag collapse, and this is described by Sergeant Greenstreet. The bag rapidly deflated. I was in the control car the whole time. When the bag deflated, the ship fell bodily, with the tail down for about 500 feet. As soon as she started falling, the elevator helm was put hard down and the engine speed increased, water ballast being discharged from aft at the same time. There was an acknowledged procedure of slowing all engines in the case of a sudden and unexpected problem, and this was most certainly followed on the 5th of October. At low level, probably flying pitched up, slight down elevator might be added to prevent a tail strike and resist any tendency to climb. Winding on full up elevator took at least 45 seconds, often longer. Steph sent slow commands in sequence to the five engine cars. As the power reduced, so dynamic lift reduced too, potentially removing the one chance of pulling out before the approaching Beauvais Ridge. Hugo Eckner, the Zeppelin aficionado, had also once rescued a similar situation by selecting full power and using dynamic lift to pull out. Detailed calculations carried out by Macefield and Simpson in the 1990s showed that if the R101 engines had been put to full power, there was a chance, rather than a high probability, that she could have been rescued, and of course increasing power might have made the crash worse. The application of up elevator levelled the ship, though she was still descending, but only long enough for Leach, the foreman engineer, to replace a spilled decanter and glasses on the smoking room table before the final dive commenced. He was unaware of any material failure or panic. Tom Cave Brown Cave related some discussions with Leach in August and October 1962. The smoking room is so close to the control room, the control car and the crew space that Leach would certainly have heard if anything alarming or which needed prompt action had occurred. He did hear the engine telegraphs and the reply gongs when the engines were slowed immediately before the crash. A second dip followed, probably caused by a gust exacerbated by the reduced power. Chief Cox and Hunt, realising that grounding was inevitable, calmly left the control car and called, We're down, lads, as he passed the switch room. 
The sleeping electrician, Disley, who survived, was in his bunk, but just found time to trip one of two vital electrical circuits before impact, highlighting another potential cause of the unexpected fire. Hunt's destination is unknown, possibly to wake the crew and passengers. The grounding was survivable. Fire was not expected. There was an established history of successful groundings in other ships. The impact itself was gentle, more of a crunch than a crash, said Leach. The nose nudged forward before settling. The control car, rear-engine cars and tails staying aloft before coming to ground. A single sapling stood undamaged inside the wreck, evidence of the slow vertical settling after impact. With some engines still running at speed, the impact was sufficient to compact the structure by 80 feet. The transfer's frames acting like crumple zones, breaking pipes and staircases. The long girder sections stayed generally intact. Leach told of the ceiling collapsing before explosions and fire ripped through the ship from nose to stern. Hydrogen with oxygen burns rapidly upwards, pulling in cold air below, and thereby increasing the chances of escape for those in the rear uncrushed engine cars. For those asleep in their cabins, there was no escape. Tom Cave Brown Cave reported in discussions with Leach in 1962. Previous to the crash, Leach had felt no structural shock as would have arisen from structural failure. When in a much earlier flight of R101 to the RAF display, one gas bag restraining wire had failed, Leach had clearly felt the shock, although he was some distance away. Investigations in France that afternoon by technical staff soon after the crash confirmed that no structural failure had occurred in flight. As for the unexpected dives, the official inquiry concluded the cause to be a major loss of lift forward of the CG, probably caused by a catastrophic failure of the cover. The accompanying drag, a gust, or broken structure damaging one or more of the fragile forward gas bags. Sir Peter Macefield, who had investigated the incident over many years, persuaded Professor Alan Simpson and the Computer Department of Bristol University to run various scenarios of the flight profile. These confirmed the inquiry was right in this judgment. But why did the bags collapse so suddenly? Rigger Church, a survivor for only days, reported that he had been sent forward to release a half ton of nose ballast, but never made it. Rope was up and about inspecting wiring, valves and behaviour. Of all those on board, he had the most comprehensive knowledge. Perhaps he discovered a tear in the unplaced portion of outer cover, the wetting in the inrush of wind collapsing the bags. The ballast issue is interesting. There were two half-ton bags on manual release, so why request Church to release only one? Rainwater ballast recovery had been reported as in progress en route. Why was that unavailable? Some written reports suggest forward ballast was available, though releasing ballast at low level could actually upset the trim further. The rate of descent was reduced considerably before impact. If the forward ballast was balanced by a successful after-release, the angle of dip could have increased. There were eight survivors on the night. The Riggers, Radcliffe and Church soon died in France. Leach and Disley were both low down in the ship, but outside the crushed control car, whilst Binks, Bell, Cook and Savory escaped from the suspended external engine cars. Disley described the ship as flying too low across the channel, with the height coxswain being corrected by the experienced First Officer Atherston. The inquiry was told that Johnston, the navigator, had used calcium flares dropped into the sea to assess wind and drift. 
It has been alleged that the box of unused flares were left open in the control car and ignited by the damp forest when it grounded, and many historians see this as a possible cause of the fire. The initial impact caused horizontal compression throughout the structure. This may well have fractured water ballast pipes. Those running above and through the control car could have soaked the flares as the ship settled. The control car was well clear of the ground at the point of fire originating. Only a small portion of the fabric remained unburned. On the undersides of the elevators, plus the blue ensign, tattered but still flying from the tail. That flag survives today in Cardington's village church. Nobody survived from the crushed control car, or passenger, or crew accommodation. All survivors from the base of the ship or the engine cars. The starboard promenade survived. The accommodation block was very strong, but there was no way out. The access corridor to the nose was crushed on impact. If the flares ignited in the crushed control car, the the usable's distorted stairway could have funneled that fire into the sleeping quarters. Binks and Bell escaped when the water tank above them fractured and created an escape path. Late on duty, Binks had prevented Bell from turning in, thereby saving his life. The heroic Disley, once rescued, insisted on finding a phone to advise Cardington of the catastrophe before he accepted any medical care. Staying with the fire, other possible causes include sparks from the two forward engine cars, still running at reduced revs as they hit the structure, hot carbon emitted from the diesel engines as they were throttled back in sequence, or the tank of petrol for the Ricardo starting engines in the base of the forward car. This may well have vaporised and been ignited by a spark as the props or girders clashed. The starboard engine car was inverted and rammed up into the structure on impact. The port midship car shows signs of an internal explosion, though this did not come up at the inquiry. Was this a petrol explosion? We will never know for certain. Leach saw a blinding white flash from the smoking room, possibly the calcium flares seen earlier in the open container, doused with water from fractured piping. It was a two and a half inch main ran through the car. But was this the primary fire or a secondary ignition? The only eyewitness, a French poacher, claims the fire started forward with several explosions. This was Rabouille, the only eyewitness, and in a signed statement to the gendarmerie, he said, As soon as that part of the ship, which is halfway between the nose and the middle, touched the ground, I heard a terrific explosion. While a giant flame swept the envelope from front to tail, and I was knocked down on my back, I am sure it was a sudden gust of wind which actually blew the dirigible down as she was nearing the ground. I remember, after she settled on the ground, the middle part collapsed as if she had broken her back. I think there were three explosions in all, one terrible one and two lesser ones. The recovery of the bodies at night in a French field by locals and the gendarmerie, combined with the burned condition of the bodies, precludes reliable evidence of who died where though it is accepted that most lay between frame 6 and frame 8. The majority were never identified. Even though various personal items were collected, their attribution was hurried and far from meticulous by today's standards. The French community performed admirably in the harsh conditions given the shocking circumstances. Back in England, as word of the disaster spread, Royal Airship Works investigators and the media rushed to the site, Planes were hastily arranged from Croydon. The British air attaché from Paris supervised the arrangements with considerable help from local French authorities. The aptly named destroyer, HMS Tempest, 
was dispatched to collect the bodies from Boulogne on Tuesday the 7th of October and carried them to Dover where a special train took them on to London. The following days were harrowing for the nation, grim statements and tragic headlines. The 48 flag-draped coffins lay in state in Westminster Hall with long queues on the embankment and two sombre memorial services that were attended by the assembled delegates to the Imperial Conference. On Saturday the 11th, a formal procession saw thousands lying the route from Westminster, along Whitehall towards Euston, and a special train. Well-wishers even lined the railway tracks to the funeral at Cardington. The head of the procession reached the mass burial site before the tail of the procession left Bedford Station. The Air Ministry had lost its champions, and Bedford mourned its heroes. The Imperial Airship Sheen was short on time, money, expertise, and results. Our hundred, in need of considerable repair, and the insertion of an additional bay, never flew again. In 1930, Sir John Simon led the Court of Inquiry. J.T. Seymour Brabazon and Professor Inglis were his assessors. Although not formally recorded, part of the brief was clearly not to apportion individual blame, but to investigate the cause. They later congratulated each other on achieving a satisfactory outcome. 42 witnesses gave evidence over 13 days. Though, interestingly, some of the remaining Cardington design staff were not called. There had been no structural failure in the air. The report, the depression, and the advances in fixed-wing aircraft sealed the fate of the UK programme in 1931. As the Concord of its time, many of the team had addressed this society during the programme, and Richmond, Colmore, Scott, and Cave Brown Cave had reported regularly to engineering institutions. Airship development was the state of the art. Following the disaster, the aviation press and public media debated the issues, often with hindsight. Hindsight also lets us speculate. Had they left just 30 minutes earlier, the experienced watch, still on duty, might well have reacted differently. Had Scott or Colmore insisted on waiting 12 or 24 hours, the worst weather would have passed through northern France. Two significant books were set to inform future generations. In 1954, Neville Shute Norway, by then an accomplished novelist, wrote his autobiography Slide Rule. This detailed his work later with the Airspeed Company and raised valid issues regarding government policy. Unfortunately, it also contained embittered memories of the relationship between Wallace and Richmond, Howden and Cardington. Norway later admitted this false bias, but his words are still quoted to this day. The second book was Macefield's To Ride the Storm, published in 1982. This followed years of painstaking research. Subsequently, Macefield initiated the further detailed discussions with leading figures from the programme and the Bristol analysis. Recent research has uncovered much new evidence and revisited Sir Peter's notes. The majority of the conclusions are substantiated. Unfortunately, Macefield never published a second revised edition, nor did his equally thorough biography of Lord Thompson ever go to press. Progress with the new designs at Cardington, R-102 and R-103, confirmed that both experimental ships had identified design issues and that the specification was approaching maturity. With intermediate masts and a little more patience, the program might well have succeeded. The disaster was a result of a number of coincident factors. The weather. The timing. Testing, 
management, staffing, and risk. In conclusion, Cave Brown Cave said to the historical group in 1962, Perhaps the fatal mistake was insistence that the ship must take the Secretary of State to India in the most impressive style and get him home to tell a personal story to the Imperial Conference. Without him, without the supporting passengers and the great unnecessary weight, and if Colmore had been allowed to choose his time of departure, R-101 could almost certainly have flown to India and probably returned before the end of the Imperial Conference. So, was the whole project a waste of resources? Certainly not. The course of long distance and aerial navigation was advanced in a number of ways. Sir Alfred Pugsley, to the Newcomen Society in 1982, declared, Rigid airship construction brought into being the whole aluminium industry upon which aeroplanes have since so much depended. Indeed, as I have pointed out elsewhere, in this country the construction of the R-100 and the 101 did for aluminium alloys what the construction of the fourth railway bridge did for steel. Legacy of the programme. The rigid airship programme brought with it a number of long-term benefits to aviation. Materials, navigation, meteorology, structural integrity and stress, experience on weight reduction, Judging by Concorde 380, the 787, F-35, A-400, we still have problems predicting time and cost. Flight test programs, safety and analysis also improved a great deal. The compassion of the local population of Beauvais and Alon, the village where the accident occurred, was formally recognised and a memorial was unveiled in 1933. The common grave remains tended at Cardington. Although now suffering from prolonged neglect and besieged by planning, planned housing developments, the Royal Airship Works sheds still stand defiantly against the elements, as did the men of the R101. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, Peter and Giles, for a fascinating overview of the R101 and the accident. Now, we have time for uh, discussion. My name is Peter Bugay. I'm a past master of the Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators. And purely as a little bit of background information, the um, four of the uh, those who were killed on R101, Sefton Branca, Ernest Johnston, Noel Atherston and uh, Morris Giblet, the Met Officer, were founder members of the Guild of Air Pilots and Air Navigators. We have in our office in Hoburn the original 1929-1930 members book, the journal of the membership. And on the four pages of those members, written across with a line in red ink, Against it, written, died R101 disaster, 5th October 1930. So if anyone wishes to see an original source, 
they're most welcome to come to our archive room uh, at Hoburn. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, my name's Alex Fisher. I'm a member of GAPAN and, and past holder of the trophy, which was uh, named after Johnson, the, uh, the navigation navigator, uh, which actually has most magnificent uh, silver um, uh, representation of the R101. And uh, it also has names of the most in, incredible uh, collection of uh, British aviators, uh, uh, who, whom I'm really not... Um, uh, fit to be on the same same list, frankly, but they included Chichester among others. And uh, um, anyway, about what the, my thought um, listening to this and listening to uh, the suggestions that well, if they if they delayed by a few hours or if they'd been a bit earlier, etc., it would have happened. One of the effects of, a, of an accident is, of course, to reveal uh, defects which uh, <clears throat> uh, fair weather won't. So, had they succeeded in in getting to India, that all these defects would surely still have been there, and the um, so, is it not the, the fact that this is this was fundamentally an, an unsafe design, and that or an, an unsafe operation, whether it's design or not, and um, sooner or later, frankly, you know, sadly, it was going to go, it was going to all, all come to grief. It's certainly true that a lot of the big rigids fell foul of bad weather, um, but uh, uh, there are still others that do not uh, are not convinced by the idea that airships cannot be all weather craft. Um, certainly with the more availability of uh, helium, the consequence of an airship coming to ground has changed dramatically. Had helium been available for either of those big ships, uh, the payload would have been reduced again and it would have been uh, um, impossible to uh, attempt the same things. With the intermediate mass, shorter range, much less fuel, um, I think potentially it was doable. There wasn't a structural failure. Um, as we've shown, there were ships with catastrophic damage that flew on or flew home. Uh, as with so many disasters, it's a culmination of maybe 20 factors here, which uh, had two of them not concurred. Um, they might have got away with it. Similarly, they might have, have recovered and failed on another one. Um, the cover weakness was being looked at. The fabrics, the bag fabrics were being looked at. But they hadn't been solved in time. And political urgency, an oncoming recession, um, all those issues we're familiar with today um, were driving people forward. Um, and potentially the only people who could have said no were Scott and Colmore. Um, and they perhaps didn't stand up and say it to Thompson. And perhaps Thompson at that time, uh, or ever, had the full knowledge of how much work had been done on both ships to get the weight down um, to an absolute minimum. Um, Giles certainly has some comments about uh, all-weather sustainability, having been up in some rough weathers. Well, what, do you what, what I was going to say is that... Um, what seemed to be forgotten is that these ships were experimental. They were both trying out all sorts of different things at the same time, which anyone who's done any pioneering knows is a, a crazy way to go about things. If they had been allowed to get on with the development, I, I think they would have achieved their aims quite well. Um, it, it's, it's a very long and complex story. There are many aspects to it. One of the, the results of the R-38 crash was that we became obsessed with streamlining and strength. And if you look at the outline of the R100 and the 101, they are very, very small at, at the nose and the tail. They don't have much lift at the nose and the tail. It makes them very lively in pitch. But had they just built them fatter, they wouldn't have had all these lift problems. The other thing is, there have only ever been a 1,000 airships in the history of the world. 
How far back in history do you have to go till there have only ever been a thousand aircraft? We're talking First World War. We're talking wooden struts and string. These things are experimental. They're prototypes. And for everybody to pile on board and head off to India is crazy. My name is Brian Hussey. First of all, congratulations on a really brilliant presentation. Um, my question relates to a possible cause of the crash. Beyond where the R101 crashed is Beauvais Ridge, and that was notorious uh, for turbulence and had often been reported by airline pilots flying on the London to Paris route. And Sir Sefton Branker is said to have been in a plane which suddenly dropped 300 feet at that point. And that turbulence could well have carried back to where the airship crashed. There have been a number of computer simulations have been done in recent years to try and understand this double-dive flight path. And they have quite often included, at some point, a sudden downdraft. I do believe that that was, in fact, or could have been, a factor in the crash. Most certainly, and we did allude to that. The... Um if you are fortunate enough to see a copy of this month's aeroplane, there is a seven-page article that concentrates on the last five minutes of the accident and a very good illustration in there showing the presence of gusts. Um, it is certainly the case that along that edge, in that particular weather, um, gusts were likely, although there is some communication between Maysfield and the Met Office which suggested that there probably weren't that many gusts. But I think it is probable that there was certainly unstable air and as we pointed out, the front of the ship could encounter completely different levels of gust, up or down, um, as the back of the ship. Uh, so the air was, there was a storm, there was, there, the rain had eased, but it had been very wet and very turbulent. Uh, I think the factor of the new watch taking control of a ship that is pitching a little um, and struggling a little um, is far more significant. Um, the presence of the ridge would affect the weather in the locality, but the myth that she hit high ground because there was high ground in front of her, uh, we don't allow for. If you look at the, the land profile, she was approaching a ridge in advance of the Beauvais Ridge, um, which she was quite capable of clearing had she maintained the height she was at. Um, she was obviously fighting to stay below cloud so they could get some visual reference. Uh, she couldn't have been so low that there wasn't room for two dives because if you're 1,500 or less off the ground and you're 800 feet long, there's hardly room to make the manoeuvres that we've indicated. Um, but uh, we have to accept that uh, the Bristol analysis was thorough. Uh, there were over a 1,000 cases of different um, lift and drop uh, investigated um, and the only one that seriously mimics the described flight profile from the guys in the engine cars um, and in the eyewitness suggests that uh, potentially the first failure was due to the collapse of loss of forward lift and the second failure was um, accentuated by the fact that they lost dynamic lift through throttling back the engines, but the actual coming to ground was quite likely a gust. I'd just add uh, quickly that... Um the Beauvais Ridge is always brought up as being the obstacle they had to get over, and it sort of appears in our minds as something like Beachy Head. But when you look at it, uh, and you can get contour things on Google Maps, it's actually quite a small ridge. They were quite a long way away from it. There were a lot of anomalies reported by aircraft in that area, so definitely strange stuff goes on. The second thing is, 
when they did the calculations for the inquiry, the initial thing of if you take gas out of the front of the ship, what happens? Their calculation showed it hits the ground tail first. I know that sounds crazy, but that's what they found. So they had to do the calculations again and again and again. And in the end, they managed to make it do two dives. And the strange thing is that when Sir Peter Macefield did his computer simulations, same thing happened. I think, I, I may, have, may have got this wrong from memory, I believe that the case he finally ends up using is case number 22. In other words, 21 goes at getting this thing to, to do a double dive didn't work. So we bring the gust in, because without the gust it doesn't work either. So we really don't know why that ship dies so suddenly. There were three or four questions very close to you to begin with, then centre forward. Uh, Don, Don Williams, uh, something I've always thought quite extraordinary, and it still seems to stand, is that the change of watch at two o'clock was perfectly routine. Now, uh, in a big airship, or a small airship for that matter, response times are very, very slow. Everything happens very slowly in a big rigid. And if we're saying that things were normal at two o'clock, it follows that we're saying that the whole disaster took place in seven minutes. Almost less, most likely five minutes. Well, five minutes. I don't believe it. Well, you've got to allow time for Hunt, because Hunt is reported as walking away from the control car and going back into the crew space to say we're downlets. So you've got to give him a minute for that. So he must have known before. I mean, it, it, it does very, very difficult to think what can have happened in that short time. Power reduction on the engines took a fair number of minutes. The winding up of the elevators took 45 seconds, and they hadn't completed the full engine cut, shut down uh, when it hit the ground. I mean, the, the, the uh, Bell and Binks who got out of the aft car um, say that they had completed, they heard the bells for reduced to uh, slow, uh, they returned the call, because when you're slowing down, you return the bells as well. Then they got the instruction. Uh, then they, they felt the, the thud. Um, they were still up in the air, nearly 50 feet up in the air, and they still completed the shutdown. The two forward engines, although they'd been put to slow, were certainly still turning. I mean, there are gouges in the ground, and they were recorded and plotted and measured. Um, so... That process, which if that was the standard procedure, was initiated when they felt they were going to ground, um, couldn't be much longer than a couple of minutes. Um, it's got to have been a catastrophic failure, and that's where we come to the ripping of the bags in the front. Uh, there are people who say, I mean, Giles is one of them, that says that if you look at those bags, there are close seams, there are stopping hems, there are all sorts of things that stop the bag following its rip. So how did they lose all that lift at the forefront so quickly? You know, the gas is under low pressure. It will release at the top of the bag, but the low pressure at the bottom, it's got to work its way up the bag. So it has to be catastrophic. Um, the theory of Macefield, of it, if it had gone to full power, could it have pulled out using dynamic lift alone? You have to accept, I think, that the nose aerodynamics was seriously damaged. So half of that wind that is going to give you that dynamic lift is probably entering the ship. And that, potentially, is what probably collapsed the gas bags. So it wasn't just puffing out through pressure. It was low pressure. It must have been forced out. And forcing out suggests an awful lot of wind coming in through the front of the ship. So I think it's absolutely clear that it all happened 
pretty quickly. They wouldn't have changed the watch. I mean, some of them probably had had time to drop off. I know they were completely worn out. I mean, they'd been working on the trial flight, sweating to get the ship finished, sweating to get it loaded, um, and then they were away. Um, all night in a storm, um, handling the weather. Um, I'm sure the most experienced officers would have found that extra adrenaline if anything had been amiss at 2 o'clock. And the discipline of a watch change, Navy tradition, they knew exactly how to do it. They were hot bunking, so one goes back, kicks the other one out. Uh, and Binks and Bell were the only two where there would have been an empty bunk because he was late. He even had time to have a coffee when he was woken and told he was two minutes past two. He should have relieved his fellow officer. He had a coffee. Then he went 100 feet or so, probably nearly 200 feet from his bunk to that rear engine car. So walk 200 feet, and you're still after 2 o'clock. So yes, 2.04 seems to be the start of the problem. 2.09, it's on the ground. It was that quick. Sort of following on from that, um, you compare... Sorry, Martin Hill from the Airship Association. If you compare, say, the Hindenburg accident compared to this... Now, the Hindenburg caught fire several hundred feet above the ground, and it was consumed in less than a minute, but two-thirds of the people survived. Now, was that a case that they were not asleep in their bunks, as some of the crew and, some, and the, all the passengers were? Was that a significant factor? Very much so. And the material surrounding those cabins being flammable, as well as the hydrogen? I think you'll find 90% of the people in the Hindenburg, maybe all of them, would have been either at their posts working or standing at the windows watching the crowds. They were arriving. Um, boarding on a Zeppelin was through the control car. So there were doors and access routes in and out um, at that point of the car, which wasn't burning. The top of the nose canopy was burning on the Hindenburg as she fell to ground. I find it absolutely staggering that many people got out, let alone walking wounded. Um, but I can quite understand why hardly anybody got out of the 101. In bunks, in fabric enclosures... Um, sealed from the elements. If Leach, who was experienced, and, the, and he's the most credible, credible witness because he was the highest in the hierarchy, he was foreman engineer, actually travelling as a passenger from the RAW, he wasn't actually on the crew, although he had a role, and he'd been instrumental in sorting out the engine problems. Um, but if he didn't hear anything, and he was in sight of the uh, control car, um, then it's pretty instant, and that's he got out by breaking through structures Binks and Bell only got out with a water tank cascading over them. Um, everybody was low down. Um, I've not seen a serious hydrogen fire, but to all intents, it goes whoosh. And the hydrogen within a few minutes is gone. The structure, all the fittings, the Lloyd Loom chairs, the balsa wood cladding to the um, passenger accommodation. If you were within that box, and the only way you knew to get out was up a nose gangway, I don't think you even got to the nose gangway frankly, and the body count suggests they were all still between frame six and eight, which is the accommodation. The other thing is the nose gangway was the bit that hit the ground. Yeah. So the only way in and out was crushed. So there are sort of places I don't really want to go thinking about. But I'm sure that the, the fact that they were uh, all in bed was, was a major factor. The other factor is that the airship was 88 feet shorter. The wreckage is 88 feet shorter than when the ship left the mast. That compression can only have happened when it hit the ground. When it hit the ground and the, the transverse frames collapsed, it's very probable that all sorts of things like the stairs, and we don't know what else broke, but it may not have been actually possible to get down the stairs after that first impact. And they're just trapped in the fire. Oh, there's 
this size. There was one in the exhibition that opened at Cardington on Saturday. Um, they were tested by standing 30 people on them and telling them to jump up and down. Um, the, most, the strongest girders in the entire ship were those floor girders. So there's no way you're going out through the floor. The windows were burning and they were in the promenades which were separated from the accommodation and they were on the, the upper deck. Um, there really was no way out. Uh, question over here, and then the lady here. Christopher Elliott, um, two or three things about the airship. When I did a little book in the 1970s on East Anglin air history, Mrs. Roop, Scotland Lady Roop's wife, uh, helped me and drew attention to the lovely chapel at Kesgrave in Suffolk, dedicated to her husband. I believe there are some relics there from the airship. Other observations I, I'd like to make. When the L-48 Zeppelin crashed in Suffolk in 1917, I always understood it gave us the designs for the R-33 and for subsequent airships that we, we were interested in. Uh, is that so? L-33 wreckage was the one that was collected in large quantities, and it was the inspiration. I think, well... That was a super Zeppelin, and I don't think it ever... It was brand new when it crashed in Suffolk. Yeah, well, 48 contributed, and there was lots of interrogation of prisoners, but I think the generally held view I've read is that the R-33 was based on the L-33, although the number clash is completely oh, incidental. Yeah. Um, but certainly we were copying... Um, and arguably the R-100 was a copy of the Zeppelin system, albeit with some incredibly innovative improvements in structure. If you look at the inside structure of a Zeppelin of the time, there were girders everywhere when you look at the joints, whereas the spider joint and what was done on the R-101 were much, much simpler. In 1919, I believe, two super uh, German Zeppelins were flown to Pullum in Norfolk, where they were... I think they were finally dismantled. Do you know anything about what we learned from them? I, I think we, we attempted to learn from every fragment of Zeppelin that was ever recovered. The two um, that were stored intact um, were broken up to make room for other, our ships because shed space was such a, a premium. And in fact, there's one Zeppelin that parts were recovered from uh, to Barrow uh, before the L-33, um, where Masterman unloaded fragments of the LZ-85 from Salonika in 1916, um, where there is very little documentary evidence at all that those parts inspired and contributed to British airship technology. Um, but it certainly happened, um, and there are photos of the wreckage and, and measurements taken, etc. As far as the Kesgrave um, uh, church is concerned, I can confirm your story. There are some very small parts of the R101 that were requested to be incorporated into the locks of the main door. Uh, there is a model about uh, so long, which was made at the Royal Airship Works um, and is really the only accurate model of R101C, the final version, made by the apprentices um, and given to uh, Doreen Rope uh, as a memento. The church itself contains a great deal of Rope family history. You know, a lot of the parts of the church were contributed by families, um, and the Rope Trust have uh, been of great assistance in the preparation of this lecture. Uh, the church was built with some of the insurance money and other money within the Rope family, 
and it enjoys a very healthy congregation. Um, but uh, it isn't sort of visible as a tourist uh, site. My name is Lucinda Sperling, and I'm currently working on a screenplay and hope to produce a feature film about the R101. And my question was, in your opinion, what is the most likely cause of the explosion after the crash? There are several different theories which you presented, but I wanted to know what you thought was most likely. I think um, and it, it, we will never know. Um, my uh, conclusion, and I think that with which we, we seem to agree um, with those that we've discussed it with, is that the initial explosion was probably in the region of the forward engine cars. My vote, if I was put against the wall to do it, would be that the petrol vapour from the 12-gallon petrol tank used for the Ricardo starting engine in the port forward car, because the other one had turned over to diesel, um, and this is the car that wasn't forced up into the structure, um, but does show in photos of the crash site evidence of an internal explosion, that probably those fumes, and we know from experience and the airship people knew just how inflammable petrol fumes are, um, that that probably was the first thing to go up. How that spark or hot exhaust pipe um, or electrical circuit or whatever actually caused the ignition I can't make a bid, but I would say that I think the first ignition and the first flame was at that forward point. Uh, it ties in with Rabui, um, and it dispels Macefield's conclusion, which is that the calcium flares are the initial. Um, the calcium flares at the point of ignition were nowhere near hot, wet foliage. The only source of water could have been the fractured manifold, as we've mentioned. Um, but even then, the flames would have started there, and the woof then might not even have carried to the nose. I don't think many people would have survived. Church might have not been so badly burnt because he was on his way to release this forward ballast. Possibly he couldn't get there because the bags were in the way, fallen over the companionway. So I, I would vote for petrol in petrol fire caused by something in the port forward engine car. But the secondary explosion, which could well be calcium flares, um, may well have only been seconds later. I, I would agree. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, my congratulations to, to the presenters. It, it was wonderful research. I, I'm Bob Adderley, and I'm a member of the Neville Shute Foundation. And we've obviously followed the trials of the R100 and R101, the similarities and the discrepancies. Something, because of the tube strike today, I travelled early to Hamilton Place, and I spent some very useful time in the reading room and I browsed through the very first copies of the first editions of Airship, the periodical with which I'm sure you're more familiar than I am. But what they were saying in that era, very shortly after the crash, a number of current crew and things were, for instance, that it was suggested that just after 2 o'clock, after the watch changed, there was a fire in the crew quarters, and that therefore the guy descended rapidly to do rather than do. Now you may dismiss this as a to, total red herring, but it was suggested. If I may, going on from that, following what the lady asked, which really, what was the cause of the fire, the explosion? The key point to me is that I understand from your delivery was that the speed of impact of that airship was very low indeed, possibly only 20 miles per hour. So my real question to you is, 
if that explosion had not occurred, can you indicate what the survivability rate would have been? I, Thank I think you, sir. almost everybody could have walked away. Yeah. I think they would, the crew would have forced an exit out of the central area. Uh, potentially the control car op uh, occupants might have been crushed. Um, as you could see, it pancaked vertically um, after the nose had hit as the lift dropped off and the flames re reduced it to scrap. Um, the weight of that centre section brought the centre down. Um, whether people in that control car had any chance then, I don't know. But certainly for the passengers, had it not burnt, I think they would have forced their way out and walked clear, yes. um, quite likely. That's um, what I was seeking to ask. Your, your earlier point, can just repeat it? The, the, your first question was... That fire, there was a fire, a fire, fire in inside. the crew quarters. Yep. I mean, there have been lots of suggested other causes, etc. Uh, I mean, um, we mentioned and did paid homage to Cave Brown Cave's theory of the all the gas flying to the tail, but frankly, we don't actually sign up to that one. Um, we think that the Macefield scenario of the double dives is sufficient without gas flying to the tail. Um, but it's another theory, and there is no complete answer to this. Not enough people survived. Had there been a fire in the crew area, then there is no way that uh, Morris, that um, uh, Disley would have still been asleep in his bunk, close to the centre of the ship, uh, that, um, Church, that Leach wouldn't have known about it. Um, he's in a smoking room, you know, heaven forbid. That, that's the only safe place in a fire. He'd have had visitors. Um, I think there's, there's absolutely no question that there could have been a fire midships uh, it doesn't fit the burn pattern. Um, it really doesn't fit anything um, in, in the sequence of events following 0204 hours to 02836 or whatever it is. I, I believe that article in flight is by Boothby. Yes. Yes, I, I remember that. He's the only person who's put that forward, and there's no, no real evidence to substantiate. I, I, I think so, yes, but he, he certainly did advance it with some strength. Yeah. Thank you for such complete answers. Paul Ross, chairman of the Airship Heritage Trust. Uh, can I add my congratulations to a, a, a marvellous presentation this evening? Uh, what seems to be the final question, and it may be appropriate, if the R101 had survived the journey to India, would she have made it back? I've always been puzzled about this because uh, the loss of lift in high temperatures would suggest to me that she would have been incapable of flying back to Cardington with anything like a reasonable payload. So what would they have done if they'd got to Karachi? Well, Thompson already had plans in hand to come back by standard aeroplane. Um, there isn't any evidence that Imperial had anything actually parked at Karachi waiting for him. Um, but the scenario that is described by Paul is actually quite likely. Um, the ability of the R101 to make a return journey, uh, particularly via Egypt, at that time of year um, had been looked at and it was by no means a certainty. Uh, it would have needed considerably, considerable luck, both with weather, temperature, um, and the reliability and, and delivery of the ship's progress as defined as possible. Um, there are even people that suggest that it would have been stuck out there until the spring. Um, because it was, if you look at the, the stuff from 1924 when the whole scheme was projected, um, there were l endless diagrams of the right time 
that you could go to India and back. Um, there, there, needed, there had been acceptance, I think, that for anything approaching a regular service to India, let alone onward to Australia, a bigger ship was required. Um, and our 102, 103, and even by 1948, 104, so they hadn't dismissed the program even by then, um, it was needed that something at least one and a half times the size was required for regular, reliable operations. I mean, even then, there would have had to be prototypes and tests. Um, as it was, uh, even if the whole trip had been a success and they'd made modifications, they probably would have run into wartime uh, before things started to really get into um, to regular services, and then there wouldn't have been the opportunity to mount regular services. Uh, there was just a lot of time, a lot of development needed. As Giles has said, they were both prototype ships. Uh, they required a little more deference as prototypes, um, and some of the lessons learned needed to be learned from. They were then faced after the accident with a dearth of expertise. Um, even Barnes-Wallace had moved on. Uh, the cost of going to a bigger ship meant bigger sheds. The intermediate masts, who would fund them? I think Thompson knew this to some extent, which is why he wanted to impress the delegates. He was not looking just for verbal support from his dominions. He was looking for money. He was looking for promises of free masts, routings, support. Um, by the time all that had happened, maybe the aeroplane would have moved on. But still remember that we didn't get transatlantic airliners for a long time after that. I mean, even the first commercial service from Tampa down to the uh, Bahamas or, 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 that, or the Keys um, carried three or four people. I mean, a long way off. If we hadn't had World War II, would we have had runways and the means to carry large numbers across the Atlantic? There was probably a 15-year window after 1930 during which something could have happened, and that's why Macefield got involved in the R-104 discussions. Um, but I think, as we all know now, for the demand and mass transport the aeroplane overtook. Uh, maybe we just saved ourselves an awful lot of heartache. Um, the experts weren't there, but the knowledge was coming. Thank you very much, Peter and Giles. Now, could I ask um, Peter Elliott to um, propose a vote of thanks? Ladies and gentlemen, it's uh, rather unfortunate, perhaps, that um, lighter-than-air aviation has contributed to rather disparaging terms to the English language, uh, those being hot air and gas bags. And neither of those applies in any way, shape or form to this evening's lecture. I found it very absorbing and I think from the number of people who wanted to ask questions, um, I'm by no means the only person who um, felt that way. We had an awful lot of information put over this evening in a very approachable way. Details, uh, the background to the development of airships in the UK, design details, um, the actual story of the flight. Um, it's almost, nowadays, we hopefully almost unbelievable the way that um, fixation on the need to get to India for a particular date led to, in effect, corners being cut. Um, VIPs who had, uh, shall we say, a little excess baggage and got away with it. Um, I'm sure it wouldn't happen now. Please. The accident itself, 
clearly at this distance in time, it is, as um, Lord Brabazon hinted, it will be impossible to discover the actual cause. Uh, there's so much uncertainty. We tend, perhaps, some of us, to think of airships as being one of those dead ends that never really got us anywhere. But equally, technologically, there was evidently a lot of spin-off and benefits in general to aviation which came from the airship program. At the start of, or in fact before the start of this lecture, Charles um, conducted a quick straw poll. I was one of those who uh, put his hand up as being one of those who know something about airships. I'm now much better informed. I suspect my colleagues in the audience here also feel that way. And Peter and Giles, I'd like them to join me in giving our thanks once again.